Good evening. Good to be here tonight. And certainly um, for those who may not know, may not be aware, we have, uh, we have uh, some of our congregation here. We certainly appreciate all of you for being in attendance. This is wonderful. And we're certainly thankful uh, for that. And for all those who may be joining us online, we're thankful for your presence. Um, tonight, as we think about or contemplate the uh, history uh, of, the, of Judah in Judges, um, if you're looking for an outline of what the cycle that takes place in Judges, you will find that in Judges chapter 2, uh, verses 14 through 19. Four points, um, if you want to consider this particular cycle. Um, the nation would commit evil of idolatry, and then God would allow them to be oppressed by a neighboring nation. And then they would turn to God and cry out because of the oppression, and God would raise up a judge to deliver them. And they would have rest for a little while, and then the death of the judge, and then they would do this again and again and again. Now, one of the well-known judges during this period of time was a man named Samson, and everyone knows that he was the strong man. He was the judge who God raised up to deliver them from Philistine oppression. And so during this time, Judges, or rather Samson's story is found in Judges chapter 13 through Judges chapter 16. And so we want to kind of jump right in the middle of this as we go to Judges chapter 15, and we're going to look at our text, Judges 15, in particular verse number 11, uh, just to kind of set the stage for our message tonight. Judges chapter 15 and verse number 11. And the Bible says, Then 3,000 men of Judah went to the top of the rock Edom and said unto Samson, Knowest thou not that the Philistines are rulers over us? What is this that thou hast done unto us? And he said unto them, As they did unto me, so have I done unto them. Well, immediately one can see the difficulty of being a judge in Judah whose opposite was, was to restore his countrymen to freedom and independence. Three simple words will set the stage for this point of the story. If you were to move to verse number 10, we would look at this as intimidation. The Israelites feared the Philistines, and the Philistines had come up and set themselves in array against Judah. And so now those men go out to them, and they ask them, why are ye come up against us? Because they were afraid of these individuals, they were afraid of the Philistines, they said, why are you come up against us? So they were intimidated. But then in verse number 11, we find accommodation. Accommodation. They were so accustomed to the status quo that they were fine with the Philistines ruling over them. And so they go to Samson and say, knowest thou not that the Philistines are rulers over us? Now, when you recognize the intimidation and the accommodation, verse number 12 helps us to appreciate that it leads to cooperation. They say, we are come down to bind thee that we may deliver thee into the hands of the Philistines. In other words, Judah tells Samson that we are here to assist them in capturing you. This is the tragic picture of the spiritual decline of the whole nation. They did not want to be free because they were too afraid to fight. 
They were believers who had become fearful of what unbelievers could do unto them. It should have bothered them, this Philistine oppression, the fact that they were rulers over them. It should have bothered them to be under these uncircumcised Philistines. It should have angered them. It should have been a loathsome situation to them. But instead, they settled in nicely to the way things were. They were comfortable in an uncomfortable place. That's the title of our lesson tonight, Comfortable in an Uncomfortable Place. Let us notice some areas wherein they were comfortable in areas that should have made them uncomfortable. First of all, they should have been uncomfortable going against their own countrymen. Let's notice the next slide. They failed in this situation to protect their own. Samson had accomplished a great slaughter against the Philistines for the death of his wife and his father-in-law. If you were to read the story, you would find out that they had actually set his, his, his wife and his father-in-law, that household, they had set them on fire. And then we find when we get to Judges chapter 15, verse number seven and eight, Samson then said unto them, though ye have done this, yet will I be avenged of you, and then will I cease. And the Bible says, and then he smote them hip and thigh with a great slaughter and went down and dwelt in the top of the rock Edom. When the Bible says he smote them hip and thigh, that is a proverbial expression meaning he whipped them good. When we were younger, we used to say when a man got whipped good, we say he whipped them like he stole something. Well, he whooped those boys good. And so they now have come up and set themselves in array against Judah, and they say, we are come up to bind Samson. Because of what Samson did, they come and reveal their intentions. And they said, we want to do to him what he did to us. You know what Judah should have done? Judah should have stood up for their own. Judah should have protected their own. Instead, they decided to do what we would consider the unthinkable. They decided to side with the enemy. What a pitiful sight to see God's people siding with the enemy against a judge of Israel. In fact, Judah, the Bible tells us, gathered 3,000 men to go and bind Samson, to hand him over. If you, if you uh, gather 3,000 men, why didn't they go to Samson and say, lead us against the Philistines? Instead, they gathered 3,000 men to go up to bind Samson and to hand him over to the Philistines. You know, that's a sad commentary, but I'll tell you one that's even sadder. It's a sad commentary to see this play out in spiritual Israel as well. Talking about the church. When gospel preachers stand to proclaim the truth, stand to proclaim the truth against error and expose error to keep it away from God's people, there are those who will side with the enemy against the preachers and teachers of God's word who stand for the truth. You think about Paul when Paul wrote to the church at Galatia. Something about that church and what was going on there led Paul to reveal to us Galatians chapter 4 and verse number 16 when Paul says, Am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? Now, I just want you to know, when you read the book of Galatia, the first thing you should recognize is that Paul was not the problem. I'll tell you who was the problem. Galatians were the problems. It was their fickle nature that was the problem. In fact, Paul, in Galatians chapter 1, beginning in that book, he says, I am astonished. I'm shocked. 
that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. He said, which is not another, but there be some that will trouble you and will pervert the gospel of Christ. He said, but though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel in you than that you receive, let him be accursed. As I said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that you receive, let him be accursed. Paul said, for do I now persuade men of God? Do I yet seek please men? For if I yet seek to please men, I shall not be the servant of Christ. Brethren, I certify you that the gospel which was preached to me is not after man, for I neither received it nor was I taught it, but by revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul was not the problem. Paul was letting them know that it is your fickle nature that is the problem. You are the ones who are being removed. You are the ones that are turning away from the grace of Christ. It was their problem. You are the ones who have allowed yourself to be fooled and to be bewitched. In chapter 3 and verse number 1, Oh foolish Galatians, who have bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was evidently set forth, crucified among you. They were the problem. In Galatians chapter 5 and verse number 4, they were the problem because they were the ones who were trying to go back to Judaism, prompted by those Judaizing teachers, the background, Acts chapter 15. If you go back to Judaism, my friends, you are forfeiting Christ. They were the ones who were in danger of apostatizing. And yet here the apostle Paul is saying, am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth. Let me tell you what the truth will do. The truth will set you free. And that's what Jesus said. You need someone to tell you the truth. So what happened to their affection for Paul? Paul said there was a time when you would have plucked out your very eyes and given them to me. That's how much affection you had. And the same truth that I brought to you that brought you into the grace of Christ is the same truth that I'm preaching. Why are you allowing yourself to be courted by someone who is taking you away from Christ? And so Paul was serious about this. Paul wasn't the problem. The Galatian brethren were the problem. Paul wasn't the problem at Corinth. The Corinthian brethren were the problem. And yet, many of them was looking at Paul in a way and talking and allowing others to lead them away from the one who had taught them the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus says the truth will make you free. In John chapter 8 and verse number 32, he says, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. My friends, let me tell you something. Truth may hurt, but it's always good for you. You may not want to hear it, but it's always good for you. You may not want to change, but the truth is always good for you. And why do we spend time going against the very folks who are willing to tell us the truth? In fact, Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and tells him that he needs to preach the word. He says, and be urgent in season, out of season. And then he says, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. You know, when folk are in error, they need to be reproved. When folk are in sin, they need to be rebuked. And when folk are going all right, and we need to make sure that we exhort them to continue in the will of God, because Paul knew the time was coming when men were not going to endure sound doctrine. But after their own lust, where they're going to heat to themselves, teachers having itching ears, going to be turned away from the truth, because when you turn away from the truth, my friends, you're going to turn to something. They're going to turn away from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. And my friends, that time was then, that time is now. Far too many of us in the congregations of the Lord's church have become comfortable speaking out against the preachers and the elders who take a stand for the sins of the world. We have become comfortable in an uncomfortable place. They should have been uncomfortable going against their own countrymen. We should be uncomfortable going against the preachers and the teachers of the gospel and the elders who take a stand 
for that which is right. Not only that, they should have been uncomfortable being ruled by something or someone other than God. Here's what they tell Samson. They said, do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? You know, if I was to relate this to the church today, spiritual Israel that is, many have become comfortable in an uncomfortable place of being ruled by other things rather than God. So my question would be to you tonight is what is ruling over you? What is ruling over you? What have you allowed to rule over you so much so that you have become comfortable in that uncomfortable place? You know, some would have to say it this way. I'll make a few suggestions for you. Some would have to say, do you not know, just like Judah had to say to Samson, do you not know, some would have to say, do you not know that fear rules over me? When you think about what Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse number 7, Paul told Timothy, who apparently must have been timid, must have been shy, and must have been shrinking in some of these situations because when you consider what Paul was saying to Timothy, it appears that he needed to really encourage him. He needed to really encourage him from his timidity and being one who maybe was shrinking back at times. And, and, and Paul would tell him in 2 Timothy 1 verse 7, he said, for God had not given us a spirit of fear. Not given us a spirit of fear. In other words, God has not given us a cowardly spirit but a power of love and a sound mind. God may have given us a spirit of fearlessness, a spirit of courageousness, but he's not given us a spirit of fear, of cowardliness. In fact, consider what Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 10 and verse number 28 to his disciples. He says, and fear not them, which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to kill both body and soul in hell. Now, you need to think about this passage this way. Do not fear the displeasure of man, because in man's displeasure, he will kill the body. But rather fear the displeasure of God, because in God's displeasure, he will banish the soul to hell, to hell fire. You see, if people live in fear of displeasing man, he will more than likely displease God. And Jesus would say that you ought to fear living in displeasure to God before you fear living in displeasure to man. Because in man's displeasure, he'll destroy your body. But in Luke's account, in Luke chapter 12, verse number 4, the, Jesus says there that once he kills the body, he has no more he can do. But when you live in displeasure to the God of heaven, he has much more he can do. He can reach across the dividing line of death itself and bring you to judgment and deliver you into a hell fire that will never be quenched, according to Mark chapter 9, 43 through 48. My friend, that's the one whom men ought to fear, but he ought not to live in fear of man. In Revelation 21, 8, John recorded that the fearful, the cowardly, would have their part in the lake of fire which burneth with fire and brimstone. And then he says, this is the second death. 
The reason, my friends, we can ill afford to be ruled by fear is because fear has a paralyzing effect on people. You know, fear will, will, will prevent you from speaking up when you should. You know, sometimes when things are going on, even among God's people, when there are some problems and some situations and some circumstances that are going on, and sometimes, you know, folk are know that it's not right, but they will not speak up. Fear paralyzes folks. Fear will prevent you from standing up when you should. Prevent people from taking a stand when they should. You know, when elders, for instance, are ruled by fear, they will not make some unpopular decisions. Why? Because they know there are some people in the congregation that's going to have a problem if you make this unpopular decision. There are some folks that have let elders know that if you do this, we're going to leave. We're going to take our toys and go home. And sometimes that fear of disrupting the people, of angering the people, of disappointing the people will prevent elders from making decisions that should be made. You know what fear will do to gospel preachers? Fear will prevent a gospel preacher from preaching the whole counsel of God. Fear will make a gospel preacher take certain things off the menu. That's what fear will do. Paralyzes, stifles. It'll stop you in your tracks. It'll prevent you from doing some things that you know you ought to do. It'll make you avoid certain, certain subjects by observing the Passover. And my friends, we know that it is true because I assure you that you can't go into every congregation of the churches of Christ and preach the gospel of Christ. And that's a shame today, isn't it? Go in there preaching some of the things if you want to and you will be exiting that place never to return again because, my friends, people have become fearful of standing up for the truth. Well, in Acts chapter 20, verse number 26 and verse number 27, Paul said this to the Ephesian elders in his farewell address to those individuals. He says, wherefore I take you to record this day that I am pure from the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare unto you the whole counsel of God. Paul says, I preached and presented unto you all the counsel of God. My friend, we must not be fearful we must not be afraid to stand up and tell the truth. We must make sure that the whole counsel of God is presented. I recall on one occasion an elder saying to a gospel preacher in the matter of marriage and divorce and remarriage to stay away from it, to leave it alone. And I quote him when I said, he says, let God settle it when he returns. So we're supposed to avoid the subject, not preach it and not teach it simply because people have got themselves in these situations and we don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. So we ought to avoid the subject altogether and let God sort it out when he returns. What kind of foolishness is that? But I heard a man say that to a gospel preacher, an elder to a gospel preacher. Of course, we had a conversation after that. Listen, we've got to preach the whole council. And we cannot be ruled by fear. You cannot be ruled by fear. You know what fear will do? Fear will stop you from telling your neighbor the gospel of Jesus Christ. Fear will stop you from preventing, presenting it to your, to your friends because of the fear of losing a relationship. Fear will paralyze you. Some people would have to say, do you not know that fear rules over me? 
And the son would have to say it like this. Do you not know that doubt rules over me? Listen to what James says. James in James chapter 1, verse number 2. James said, count it all joy, my brother, when you fall into diverse temptations. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have a perfect work. That you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. And then notice verse number 5. If any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraided not, and it shall be given him. But notice, let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavered was like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. Let not that man think he shall receive anything of the Lord. For a double-minded man or a two-souled man is unstable in all his ways. There must be, my friends, when you approach God, no vacillation of the mind, no hesitancy. You either come to God with confidence and assurance or you don't come at all. You know, when you think about God and you think about impossible, you recognize that the two don't go together. But I'll tell you when God and impossible do go together. God and impossible goes together in the presence of unbelief, in the presence of a lack of faith. The Hebrew writer states this way in Hebrews 11 and verse number six. He said, but without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. My friends, some people would have to say, do you not know that doubt rules over me? Some would have to say, do you not know that wrath and anger rules over me? You know what Paul said to those at Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse number 26. He says, be ye angry, but sin not. Let not the sun go down on your wrath. A good rule to remember is that when the heat of the day has ended, allow the heat of your anger to end with it. Do not allow the sun to go down on your wrath. The reason is that these emotions can cause you to sin. In fact, most of the time that we, we would recognize that there were times when we got in trouble, when we said some things we shouldn't have said, when we did some things we shouldn't have done, a lot of times it was because of that passion called anger. That's when you said something to someone that was hurtful and offensive. Some things that you wish you could take back. Some things you wish you had not said. What was the reason? Because I was angry. You consider what Paul wrote, or rather what James said in James chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, when he says, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. He said, For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. In that state of mind, one is more likely to offend man and to offend God. He's more likely to sin against his fellow man and to sin against the God of heaven. But yet there are individuals who would have to say, do you not know that wrath and anger rules over me? And then some would have to say, do you not know that envy rules over me? My friend, envy is not a good thing. In fact, you ought to be careful if envy rules over you because that is the emotion that was identified by Pilate as the motivating factor of the Jews delivering Jesus. Matthew chapter 27 and verse number 18. The Bible says, and he knew for envy they had delivered him. But listen to what the wise man says about envy. 
In Proverbs chapter 27 and verse number four, the wise man said this, he asked this question, who can stand before envy? Who can stand before envy? There were two persons, one a covetous man and the other an envious man, to whom a certain wealthy man said that he would grant whatever they would ask. But he said, I will give a double portion to the one who asked last. Well, you know what happened then. There was a stalemate because the covetous man did not want to ask first because he obviously is a covetous individual. He wanted a double portion. The envious man would not ask last, would not ask first because he wanted to make sure he just could not bring himself to in any way profit his enemy or give this guy a double portion. It just grieved him at the very fact that he would benefit his neighbor. Why? He's an envious individual. And as this went on, finally, the envious man went first. And so the man asked him, what is your request? He said, I request that I have one of my eyes plucked out so that my neighbor can lose both of his. That's some envy. Bible says, who can stand before envy? These are like the Philistines, some bad taskmasters when you have these kind of emotions ruling over you. When these things rule over us, they create serious problems with ourselves, with our fellow man, and with God. They were comfortable being ruled by something other than God. And today, many people have become comfortable being ruled by something other than God. But not only that, they have become comfortable in the uncomfortable place of blaming others for their mistakes. Notice Judges 15, 11 again. They were comfortable with blaming Samson. This is what they say to Samson. Samson, what is this that thou has done unto us? Samson, it is all your fault that we are in this situation. If it wasn't for you, we wouldn't be in this mess. Let me tell you something. They were not in this mess because of Samson. They were in this mess because of a blatant disregard for the God of heaven. They were in this mess because of their disobedience to God. They were in this mess first and foremost because they failed to drive out the inhabitants of the land. They were in this mess because of idolatry. They were in this mess because of, I believe, what is recorded in Judges 17, 6 and verse 21, chapter 21, verse number 25, because I believe it marked the whole, whole um, 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 era was that they was doing that which is right in their own eyes. Whenever there was no ruler or no leadership in Israel, every man was doing that which was right in his own eyes. That's the kind of thing that'll get you in this mess. And how many today find comfort in this uncomfortable place of blaming others? Blaming others for their failures. Blaming others for their mistakes. Blaming others for their decisions. This has been going on from man's earliest existence even to this present hour. Who did Adam blame? Adam blamed Eve, didn't he? The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and then I did eat, Genesis chapter 3 and verse number 12. Who did Eve blame? 
Verse number 13, the serpent beguiled me and I did eat. Who did King Saul blame? In 1 Samuel 15, 21. But the people took of the spoil, the sheep and the oxen, the chief things that should have been offered or utterly destroyed to sacrifice to the Lord thy God. He said the people did it. You know, I've heard as well as you probably have as well, when you talk to unfaithful members who have left the church, who's fallen away, and you know who they blame? They blame everyone but themselves for falling away. They'll blame the elders. They'll blame the preachers. They'll blame other members for their unfaithfulness. I've heard parents blame the church for their unfaithful adult children. You know what people are fond of saying today? They are fond of saying things like, you know, the church is using, losing its young people. Have you all heard that? The church is losing its children. I didn't even know the church had children. But anyway, that's a story for another time. But the church is losing its children. We are losing our, you, our youth. The church is losing. If children who have been reared in the church are becoming unfaithful, let me offer you some other areas that I believe deserve some blame. Let's spread this blame around instead of blaming the church. I heard this a lot, that the people are blaming the church for their unfaithful adult children. You know, there's 168 hours in a week. Now, statistically, Children will spend about 35 hours per week at school. Television on average 30 hours. Extracurricular activities probably in, in light of school five to 12 hours per week. Parents will have about 85 to 90 hours per week with their children. Now if parents attend faithfully every service that the church is offering, and I'm just talking about the worship and Bible study time, they will spend anywhere from three to five hours per week, and that includes a midweek Bible study. Do you realize how much, how small an amount of time that is to be blaming the church for your apostate children? I believe it's time for parents to find someone else to blame. And I have some ideas where you can spread the blame. Blame television. On average, a child will witness 8,000 murders before finishing elementary school. When I looked up these statistics. By the age of 17, they will have witnessed 200,000 acts of violence on television. Blame the TV. Blame yourselves. Blame school. Blame the coaches. Blame the teachers, blame the band leaders, all those who we've given access to the hearts of our children to allow them to teach them and make an impact. Blame the friends who will certainly exert an influence on our children. Because by the time our children walk away from the church, I assure you, it's not because of the three to five hours they spent at the church building in worship services to God. Blame social media. 
and blame yourselves while you're at it as parents. Last time I checked, parents are responsible for rearing their children and instructing them in the ways of God, Ephesians chapter 6 and verse number 4. And blame fathers who leave it to mothers to do the discipline and the training of the children. You've heard men who talk about to talk to their children and say, wait till mama get you. Mama's going to get you. Why don't you get them? Why aren't you training? Why aren't you disciplined? Why are you leaving it? Blame fathers. If it was true in old Israel, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse number 6 and 7, the Bible says, And these words that I command thee this day shall be in thy heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou art sitting in thine house, and when thou walkest by thy way, and when thou risest up, and when thou liest down. Religion, my friend, must be taught and practiced at home as well as the temple or the tabernacle. Religion must be practiced abroad as well as at home. When you walk by the way, when you go out of town, when you are on vacation, you are not on vacation from the Lord. Teach your children up and down the roads and the highways and the byways. Make sure you are always holding religion. It should be close to them, in front of them, beside them, all around them. They should know the Lord. And it's your responsibility if they don't. Religion should be the great business of your life. You ought to start with God and end with God when you're lying down and when you're rising up. Open the day with him and close the day with him. And don't forget him in between. Certainly it was true of Timothy case. There was somebody who trained that young man, who taught that young man. From a child he had known the Holy Scriptures, which was able to make him wise under salvation by his mother and his grandmother. Far too many parents have found this comfortable, this comfort in this uncomfortable place of blaming the church for their apostate children. I just thought that it would be good if I talked to you about it tonight. No, it's your responsibility. If the church is losing the children, if the young are going away from the church, if by the time they become high school and college age, I assure you it's not because of the three to five hours they spent with the church. Check the television. Check the friends. Check the computer, the social media. Check the coaches. Check everything. Spread the blame. But stop blaming the church. Judah's situation with Samson mirrored the Jews placed with Christ. Solomon, or Samson rather, submitted to them willingly, allowing them to actually bind him when they came to the top of that rock Edom, and he had carved out a place. And when they came to him, Samson asked them, were they going to fall upon him themselves? And they said their hands wouldn't be against him. He allowed them to bind him even though he had the power to do something about it. You know, when Jesus was in that garden and Judas came to betray him, Jesus submitted to that mob, allowing them to bind him, to capture him, even though he had the power to do something about it. In fact, he told Peter, when Peter took out his sword and cut off Malchus's ear, Jesus said, put up thy sword into thy sheath. 
He said he had to drink of the cup that the father had for him. And he told them, do you not know that I could pray to my father and he will presently give me 12 more than 12 legions of angels. When you think about that, If Jesus wanted to be rescued from this situation, he certainly didn't have to rely on 12 men or 11 men or a few men pulling swords. When at his disposal was more than 12 legions of angels. That word presently is the Greek word parastamen. And that word means to stand beside. Meaning they were ready at a moment's notice. If you could picture this, that would be like those angels are standing at the edge of heaven and they're ready. They're ready. All they need is the word, go, and it's over. They were ready. And Jesus says he would presently give me 12 legions of angels. He allowed himself to be captured, even though he could do something about it. Samson was handed over to the enemy by his brethren. Jesus was handed over to the enemy by his brethren. Samson died in a shameful manner. Jesus died in a shameful manner. Samson died with the Philistine. Jesus died with two thieves, one hanging on one side and the other, as if he was one of them. Judah told Samson, we will not kill you ourselves. But by handing him over to the Philistines, they were consenting to his death. They were guilty. The Jews were handing over Jesus to the Gentiles. But they were rightfully blamed for killing our Lord and Master. Peter says in chapter 2 and verse number 23 of Acts, that ye with wicked hands. You might have used the wicked hands of the Gentiles, but you were guilty of killing our Lord and Savior. Samson was bound by cords, but those cords could not hold him. Christ was bound, but death could not hold him. God raised him up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holding of it, Acts 2.24. Let me ask you a question. Have you become comfortable in an uncomfortable place? Far too many people are comfortable in the uncomfortable place of sin. And Jesus is offering through the gospel a way for those who are tired, those who no longer desire to be comfortable in the uncomfortable place of sin. Jesus is offering you a way out. Jesus says in Matthew 11, 28 through 30, come unto me all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest for your souls. He said, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see, that is an offer for those who are tired, those who want to change, those who are disgusted with their lives in sin, and they want to do something about it. They no longer want to be comfortable in the uncomfortable place of being apart from the God of heaven. 
And those are the individuals that come find Jesus and accept his invitation to believe in him as the one God sent, as one who was equal to God, who was equal to God, as one who manifested the love of God by coming to die on that cross. And when they believe in Jesus, they are those who want to repent because of the sorrowful condition of their heart, recognizing that their sins sent Jesus to the cross. They no longer want to be a part of that type of life. And in that godly sorrow, they turn and repent, make a change, willing to confess him with the mouth unto salvation and willing to die to the love and to the practice of sin in the watery grave of baptism so that they can be resurrected out of that water to walk in the newness of life, Romans 6, 3 through 5, so that they can be saved, 1 Peter 3, 21, so they can have their sins washed away, Acts 22, 16, so that they could identify with his death, burial, and resurrection, so that they can have hope of eternal life. My friends, you don't no longer have to be comfortable in an uncomfortable place. Come to Jesus, and he'll fix it. Thank you so much for your kind attention.